The Gadfly Show is taking a break this week, but with news that ESEA has passed out of conference, we've chosen a classic ESEA reauthorization podcast episode with hosts Mike Petrilli and Anne Heislop, now of the Obama administration. Enjoy! This is the Education Gadfly Show. I have to become boring. You have to become this boring. This is going to be very instructional. I'm going to get some good lessons Trust on me, uh, how to survive at 400 Maryland Avenue. Look. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me welcoming the Justin Bieber of Education Policy and Highslip. Thanks, Mike. Why am I like Justin Bieber? You're like Justin Bieber because you're, you know, at one time, Justin was everywhere. He was super, you know, out there, invisible. And then he kind of went dark. He kind of went invisible. And that's what's about to happen to you, Anne. You are about to go invisible because you're going from being a a senior uh, policy analyst at Bellwether Education Partners. You get quoted in Ed Week. You're out there on Twitter. You know, you're super smart in all things education. And next week you go into the beast, you go into the U.S. Department of Education and you'll never be seen again. So you're saying I'm overexposed a little bit. That's, you know, perhaps doing some questionable things. First of all, I mean, me calling anybody overexposed, (laughs) I think people would find that a little bit laughable on some things. But I'm just saying you were highly visible. You're about to become less visible. You have to look and I can give you some advice and making the transition from think tank life to, uh, you know, federal bureaucrat life it's difficult you have to go from being quotable to not being ever quotable I have to become boring. You have to become this boring. This is going to be very instructional. I'm going to get some good lessons Trust on me. Uh, how to survive at 400 Maryland Avenue. Look, uh, as I can tell you from the time I was quoted on the front page above the fold of the New York Times saying something that didn't sound so great about supplemental services and not regulating them. And, you know, anyway, bottom line is now I'm excited if I'm on the front page of the New York Times Usually not a good thing uh, when you're within the government. Good uh, to know. Okay. Good to know. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here and um, share all my insights before I can no longer share them. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Your last uh, words of freedom. So great to have you here, Anne. Anne is super smart on all things ESCA and other things education policy. She's over at Bellwether. She's about to go to the Department of Ed. uh, But we are going to enjoy this last chance to hear from her. Ellen, let's play Pardon the Ganfly. Pearson is being criticized for monitoring students' online activity for the purpose of maintaining test security. Did Pearson do something wrong? So, Anne, everybody loves to beat up on Pearson. And look, it is not hard to do. They've screwed up a lot of things over the years. They're a big, huge multinational corporation. I think they might have been, uh, you know, maybe in the Lego movie. Was that uh, was that Pearson? Was Lord Business the head of Pearson? I think that probably was supposed <laughs> to be that. But uh, on this one, they're just trying to make sure kids aren't sharing questions. That seems legit, right? Yeah, I have to say, I think this has over, been overblown. I definitely feel like Pearson, they're just trying to make sure that the product they've produced, as well as what states have invested millions of dollars in these new tests, is is secure. And, you know, I think monitoring social media, monitoring web activity, that's, you know, part and parcel with test security today. Yeah. And, you know, these are public accounts, too. That's the I mean. This is a great lesson for kids, I think, in terms of (laughs) social media is social. People can see it. And that's, you know, Pearson, your parents. So if you're expecting that these um, 
questions and tweets are not going to be public knowledge. Um, I think you need to have a lesson on now, the internet. Th- this is the privacy. best part. I, I, you know, I love that some of these headlines talk about student privacy. Um, yeah. Privacy. Right. I mean, look, if they're if they're mining their private, you know, chats or cell phone calls or something like that. OK, uh, but yeah. Hey, you send a tweet. It's out there. I think we've all learned that lesson, haven't we? Uh, and, and now the kids are going to learn that, too. And by the way, in the last couple of days, we have found that lo and behold, they have actually caught some kids out there cheating. Right. And sharing questions. It's the bigger problem here. You know, yeah. That's really something that, you know, if you see that kids are cheating on exams, whether it's looking at someone's paper or taking a picture of the test, that's something that's yeah. a bigger problem to me than someone doing a Google search on Twitter for yeah. the word park. Yeah. Hey, by the way, why are the kids cheating on these tests? They don't count. Uh, it's, it's just kids. It's just being kids. They're just, they're just uh, being, they they're bored. They're kids just like. Kids have always cheated. I mean, I think that this is just the 21st no, no, no. century But usually there's some it. motivation to cheat. I mean, these tests really have no consequences for the kids whatsoever, especially this year. So I'm just wondering, right. like for the kids that have gotten caught, like, dude, what are you thinking? Like, why? Why, why do you even bother? Maybe they just think it's funny. I don't know if it's I a think cheating thing. It. They, they just like, look at this ridiculous question that we right. had to read and they may not be doing it maliciously but it could actually be used by students in other states particularly now that we're sharing assessments across state lines i think we can all agree that those kids who cheated on a test that doesn't count should definitely not be considered college and career ready okay (laughs) topic number two ellen Ellen, hey ellen ask us something we might disagree about oh okay the fight continues for esea reauthorization what does the future hold for the beleaguered legislation? <laughs> and I was surprised to see this week that uh, at, at the CCSSO meeting, a bunch of heavy hitters, uh, Lilia Eskelson from the NEA, Randy Weingart and Dane Lynn uh, and uh, Katie Haycock all said they thought this reauthorization actually was going to happen. I don't know what secrets they know that I don't know, because I'm definitely more bearish on this one. Um I thought it was a great sign when Senator Alexander and Senator Murray came together and said, we're going to try and write a bipartisan bill, which, you know, all ESEAs that have ever been passed have been bipartisan. And you need to have agreement um, on both sides, at least on the big provisions to get something done and to have the president sign it at the end of the day. But what happened with the House a few Mm -hmm. weeks later, you know, the House Republican caucus just splitting on this. I don't see how you... How you can get a bill passed. So let me ask you this, Anne. If if we see a bill that comes from Alexander and Murray from the Senate that looks basically like the Alexander bill with a few tweaks to, to push it a little bit to the left. Let's say they bring back some of the programs that were consolidated. Um, they drop the maintenance of effort changes. They get rid of portability. Um, but the basic accountability stuff is the same, which basically gives it back to the states to, to figure out most of the details and how accountability would work, grading schools as well as interventions. Do you think that law deserves to get signed by the president? I think for me, the key piece is that accountability piece. It's the looser you get on what's on states, whether it's no targets, no prescriptions, no, nothing about subgroup accountability. The fewer requirements that are in the bill, the more important it is for there to be some sort of secretary approval process. And I think the problem there is that there's a... 
a disincentive, I guess, or a di- disinclination yes. to put either in the bill. Right, for good reason. <laughs> because this secretary has abused his authority and is calling the shots from Washington. And by the way, because we now have had to deal with this law for 12, 13, 14, I don't know how many freaking years, and we worry that that might happen again. And so what we don't want to do is is keep some states from having a good idea eight years from now about how to do accountability better. And because we've required them to have targets or to have this or to have that, which may make sense now, may not make sense in the future that we've tied their hands. And and so, look, I mean, basically what I'm saying here, Ann, is that you were wrong. Yes, that kind of a law definitely deserves to be uh, signed by the president. If we want, I, I just think it's... But he's it, not even going to get a chance to sign it if the uh, House can't vote on the Student Success Act. The more conservative yeah. version of the bill, well, now, now, know, now, one they, step at a time. But, but Ann, and that's, I, I agree that's the likely route. However... If the Senate passed a bill, the House could take it up and vote on it, and they could decide if they were able to get enough votes from Democrats and Republicans, then you could pass that bill. The problem with the Student Success Act is they were trying to pass it with only Republican votes, and and that is where the margins are small. If they're willing to say, hey, as long as we get a majority of Republican votes, we can lose 200 Republican votes, but we still have well, – not 200, but uh, – what? Yeah, 200 might be a little too many. But we can lose 100 Republican votes, still pass that bill. Uh, that might be something that could happen we'll see i'm going to take it one step at a time and i i do think that this accountability question and what the secretary's mm-hmm. role is in mm-hmm. approving plans and what the peer review process looks like it's wonky details but I, uh, it matters you federal bureaucrats always want to keep the power for yourself i mean if i'm going to the department i would like to have something to do exactly it's so self-interested in okay topic number three <laughs> From Cap to President Obama, the idea of college for all is as strong as it's ever been. But should it be? And I think we've sparred on this a little bit on on Twitter. Uh, I've been trying to push back on this notion of college for all. Certainly, uh, four-year college as being a goal that everybody should go to. I think most people would say, all right, we we know that uh, that's not going to happen for everybody. But what about post-secondary education? Again, great aspiration to get lots more kids into post-secondary education. But my argument is we're not going to get all kids there. uh, And we don't have to get all kids there if we pay attention to the rest of the success sequence. What, What do you think about this? I think that college for all is is a bit of a misnomer that we're talking about post-secondary training and college. You know, some sort of degree is what's needed for most students these days. It doesn't necessarily have to be that four-year degree or even an associate's degree, but some sort of post-secondary credential is really essential. All right, but 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 right now we're what getting 25%, maybe 30% of kids to the level by the end of high school where they're actually ready for college, even those technical training programs, right? 25 or 30%. We're not going to get to 100% anytime soon, maybe ever. But right? we don't have to get to that point. You know, I think you look at it right now, it's, I think, about 50% of students in the highest income bracket. You know, they graduate college within six years. It's slightly lower for the lowest bracket. I think mm-hmm. it's about 30%. Right. Those numbers need to get higher. But I don't think we can sort of wish away the need for remediation in college right now. That's going to be a problem that we're still going to have to tackle even with Common Core, particularly because you're dealing with students that have only had experience with these standards for part of their K-12 career. Mm-hmm. Well, but, if, if remediation actually worked, that would be one thing. Look, I, I think we are going to be... It's the best pathway, pathway to the middle class. It is. Remediation you know, is? No, college of some <laughs> sort, some sort of credential. Um, yes. I think I read a statistic that you know if you don't only have have a high school degree about you know 20% of 
students in that category are in poverty. It used right. to be 7%. Right. right. You, know, you can't deny the ec- economic trends here that college Ab- or some sort of post-secondary credential is what you need to do. No, look, absolutely. That getting again, but there's a big difference between more and all. And I do worry that in education reform, that we put all of our eggs in that college basket, the post-secondary basket, and that we overlook other issues. Look, if you graduate from high school and you work full time and you avoid early parenthood, then you will not be poor. And I just am arguing that some of those issues need to be on the table as well. Maybe when you're over at the Department of Education, uh, we, we can have those conversations too. We can talk about Perkins reauthorization. How yes, about that? I love it. Perkins, vocational education. Yes, absolutely. All right, that is all the time we've got for Pardon the Gadfly. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So, so Amber, did you ever think about working for the U.S. Department of Education? Um, very, very briefly. Yeah. And then it was Fordham, U.S. Department of Education. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. No, no. I don't know a, if we knew I was competing with that. Well, hey, no, no, you no. were a federal contractor. That's for right. Years. It would have, it would have been a different leap, but um, but yeah, no. Things work out the way they're supposed to work out, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Yep. Yes, they do. Okay. Well, is that what happened with this study that you're going to get into? Uh, Did things work out the way I they were supposed to? I wasn't a huge fan, but we will we will have an opportunity to discuss. So we looked at a new report out from the Consortium on Chicago School Research, which is a great little research outfit. Um, they call the report Discipline Practices in Chicago Schools, which is exactly what the report's about. Uh, they examined CPS admin data, PD arrest records in the city, surveys from teachers and students about school discipline, and they look at trends in school discipline across uh, several years years 2008 9 to 2013-14 okay mm-hmm. several key findings number one out of school suspensions are declining in cps from roughly 16 percent of high schoolers being suspended in 13-14 down from a high point of 24 percent in 9 2009-10 mm-hmm. since that year out of school suspension rates have declined each year middle school rates are a little more stable they hover around 13 to 14 percent except for one year when they kind of dipped lower but the report mainly looks at high schools given mm-hmm. that that's where we see this stuff happen. Um, CPS also instituted in 2012 a policy that's important that eliminated 10-day suspensions. Hmm. So, okay. Um, And it required principals to ask for district approval to suspend students more than five days. So that kind of made a big difference. Uh, They passed a bunch of other policies. They passed a program called the Culture of Calm. This was an initiative that aims for restorative justice versus suspensions. Uh, Finding number two, the decline, this is interesting, the decline in out-of-school suspension rates were accompanied by an increase in, guess what? In school school suspension rates. rates, Ding, ding. uh, From a low of 11% in 2013 to a high of 15% in 2013-14, the ISS rates in school suspension of black males in particular nearly doubled from 15 to 29% uh, between those years Mm -hmm. I told you about. They're also like twice as likely to be arrested than as the district as a whole. Number three, most OSS suspensions. This is out of school stuff. 60%. What do you think they're from? Primary reasons. Fighting. You would think, but it's not. It's actually student defiance. Talking Mm -hmm. out is what they call it. Um, Not complying with rules. Disrespecting teachers. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and this is the last finding. High school students and teachers report feeling more safe, safer over the years. Um, analysts report this is roughly corresponds to the decline in OSS rates. But I'm like, first of all, you can't prove that. It's not a causal study. All this is descriptive stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's possible, right, that simply removing the kid from the classroom, either via out of school or mm-hmm. in school suspension, is what might be driving these you know, differences in perception. So, I mean, I think the underlying tone of the report is that exclusionary practices, which is apparently the new word for suspending kids, mm-hmm. um, is bad. And that teachers need to do a better job of handling these kids via support and training, which is all well and good, right? But sometimes you just got to get the kid out of there yeah. if it's a huge problem. So, this is, and this is how this is being spun. I mean, we know there's this huge effort underway to discourage schools from suspending and expelling kids, uh, an effort spearheaded by Anne's future colleagues at the U.S. Department of Education over in the Office of Civil Rights, which I think is making a complete mess of this. Um, but then uh, the question is, you know, a lot of us worry, is this going to make schools less safe? And this is, the study says no. But uh, were there actually more kids being removed from the classroom now because of the increase in in-school suspension rates? Was that increase actually higher than the decrease in out-of-school suspension? The increase, was it higher than the... Oh, I mean, if you tried to tally all this stuff together, are there more kids being removed from the classroom today or, or fewer? Yes, there are more kids being removed from the classroom today. Oh, that's today. interesting. Yes. So that's, uh, but, but being put in some classroom somewhere in in school suspension, the, you know, in school prison uh, rather than in the classroom. Right. But from the perspective of the other kids uh, and the teachers, that kid's gone. That's right. That's what I'm saying. So maybe that's what's driving. They kind of said the report, well, it's, it's corresponding with the out of school Mm -hmm. suspension, but it's also corresponding with the rise in in school suspension. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. It's how, how well is that culture of calm working or being implemented? Yeah. If they're just sort of switching in school versus out of school suspension. Yeah. Right. I mean, look, and here, here's the met. Look, I, first of all, I, I'm fine. If the kids are safer in school suspension, mm-hmm. we don't want them on the streets. That's fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. I got no problem with that. And I get it that we want those kids ideally in a classroom where they are learning. Mm-hmm. I get that too, but we have to pay at least as much attention to their peers and what's mm-hmm. best for them as what's best for the kids who are disruptive. And that is what the office of civil rights does not seem to care about at all. When they tell schools that if, you know, we look at your numbers and they look like you're, you know, suspending kids and they don't hit the right proportions, uh, we might come down with you in a ton of bricks uh, is that, Hey, what about the value of creating a calm environment and this restore, of justice stuff. I mean, this is sweeping the country. Yes. Is there good evidence on it? No, not that I'm aware of. There's just not. And, 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 you know, I don't know if you guys saw it. I mean, I've just been picked up by the news a little bit um, where the, the idea, the thrust is you repair the harm you've done. Right. Like I don't the know. kids uh, apologize. Like, right. You mediate or whatever, which I don't know as a former high school teacher in a urban district, like sometimes kids need to know, like you're serious. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're, if my punishment is I sit in a room and, and talk to, you know, my buddy that I can't stand. I mean, I don't know. I just think there's a message. There's an optics mm-hmm. here too, that we need to think about. Like what message are we giving kids? Like, sure. Right. We want them to work this thing out, but sometimes like you do something so bad, you need to go, yeah. you know? Yeah. Right. It's the, you know, are these just talking out sort of minor infractions versus right. the really serious ones? And there's a lot, I think in this study that, is beneath these numbers that we do. I do at least applaud the collecting data on this and not having 
I mean, for so long, I think this has just been happening in a black box and we didn't know about it. And I I think that part of the reason the Office of Civil Rights has gotten so much traction is because some of the things they uncovered are pretty shocking, like the four year olds being suspended. That's a little bit more than the high school. I mean, I think there are things in that data that shocked, you know, and and at least are getting people to pay attention to this and hopefully we can dig underneath the qualitatively one data. thing because they did that qualitative component in here. And a lot of the administrators were saying, well we're this is actually low because now we feel like there's a big incentive not to report mm, this stuff. Right. Because now we look pretty bad and we're not doing what the policy says. So yeah, you've got the people, and that's kind of what I saw when I was doing in, in schools and reporting some of this stuff on a different job. There's a huge incentive not to not to report it at all. Like right. It just gets swept under the rug, and people will admit it gets swept under the rug because yeah. it's too much of a headache. This thing is a rabbit hole. It's a rabbit yeah. hole, Anne. It is. Woo. It is a rabbit hole, and your friends over there are not helping. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try and talk to them about it okay. and see if they can uh, Please you know, do. Please do. enlighten all of them. Knock some yes. sense into them. All right. Thank you, Amber. Hugely important. Uh, topic. I hope we can figure out a way to keep digging into it, even though it is hard with the data limitations. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week's Education Gadfly Show. Till next time. I'm Ann Heislip. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.